We're continuing our series this morning in the book of Genesis. Uh, The passage that John just read was the passage that we went through last week, uh, but we read that as an introduction to what we're going to be looking at this week. Uh, This week we're going to be moving uh, in the sermon from Genesis 9, or sorry, Genesis 6, verse 9, all the way into Genesis chapter 9 as we are going to read together and discuss uh, the flood the global flood in the time of Noah. Now, as we look at a sermon that is on the flood, there's a number of different angles that we can come at this. A number of decisions that I made and kind of discussed with Raquel uh, how best to to teach this material. Because when you talk about the flood, the one thing I could do is, is go online, and I did, is go read some of the arguments that the skeptics put forward of why they... They, they apparently disbelieve Noah's flood. And so some of the things that they mention, you know, like um, this Gilgamesh epic, the Babylonian tablets have, a, have an account of the flood. And so the Babylonian people always have a flood story. And they say it's, it's older than Noah's story. And so Moses just copied that story. And so that shows the Bible is just a myth and a legend. Uh, but as you look at these accounts, they're, one is not like the other. For instance, the, the Babylonian story, the, the ark or the boat that that a man was on was actually a cube shape. So it's not seaworthy at all. You see, it's, it's definitely a myth. And, and not only that, but it makes more sense that all these different stories, not just the Babylonians, but other cultures that also have flood stories, even as far as China have stories of the flood, it would seem much more likely that they, each of these different cultures are remembering the historical account of Noah and his salvation, how he was saved through the flood. But I could keep going through the many different Objections that skeptics offer and seek to knock them down as we talk about the flood and seek to show the reliability of Scripture. That's one way I could do it. Another way we could tackle this morning is to look at how Christians who try to harmonize the biblical account with the so-called settled results or the settled consensus of secular science. There are many Christians today that deny a global flood. They say the flood was was local uh, because they agree with the scientific consensus of an, of an old earth and that, uh, that a global flood is impossibility. And so they say, well, Noah's flood was local. So we could look at the text and look at all of the, the detail in the text given about the size of the ark, about mountains being covered, about the time involved, and we could show those arguments aren't really founded. We could also even talk about this, the absurdity of a local flood. If God flooded just Noah's region, why would he tell Noah to build a boat? Just go to the highest mountain, Noah, and go to the other side, and you'll be spared. And why, why put all the animals? Because animals everywhere, on the else, everywhere else on the earth are going to survive. So why fill this boat full of animals if it's just a local flood? It makes no, the story is absolutely absurd if it's just a local flood. But I'm not going to focus on how Christians try to synthesize with secular science this morning either. Another thing we could look at, is the geological evidence for a global flood. So rather than responding against skeptics or responding against Christians who deny the literal account of Genesis, we could talk about the evidence for a global flood. We can talk about rapidly buried fossils, the fossils of, of fish in the midst of eating their lunch or in the midst of giving birth or dinosaurs even locked in battle and fossilized. We can talk about polystrate fossils, these fossils that go right through many different layers of rock, rapidly form sedimentary layers. 
We can talk about the witness of the Grand Canyon of Mount St. Helens, the island of Surtsey, this island off of Iceland that was just formed by a volcano in our lifetime in the 60s. And already it looks like an, an old island, the, the vegetation on it, the animals on it. And it's, it's, it's confounded geologists and the timescales they use for such transformations. We can talk about rock formations that span across different continents. We can talk about the catastrophic plate tectonics that many creationists speak of. We can talk about mechanisms for ice age and massive and rapid erosions. And there's many volumes dedicated to such things. But I'm not going to be talking about those things here this morning. What I want this morning to do with this text is to preach the account of the flood as it is written in Scripture and assume that it's true and it's faithful and that's an accurate recording of history. Because that's how the New Testament regards That's how Jesus regards it and the apostles regard it. This literally happened, a global flood, in the time of Noah. So I'm going to preach through this text, assuming that. And also, what does it mean for us? What are we supposed to learn from this? Okay, if we deal with objections from skeptics or we deal with Christians who, in my mind, have compromised on the text of Scripture or if we deal with all this evidence, that will help us to build up our faith, that will help us in our apologetic and speaking to unbelievers. But what I want to do this morning is, those are good things to do. There's a time and a place for those. What I want to do this morning is to have us a better idea of who God is and a better idea of who Christ is based on the account of the flood. So this is what we're going to do. So I'm going to start reading portion by portion um, give a quick commentary on each portion of the account as we go through the flood, and then the end, try to bring all of these threads together to see what this uh, account in history would teach for us here today. So look with me in your Bibles, Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to read from verse 9 to 22 as we begin. Genesis 6, starting verse 9 to the end of the chapter. It says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door in the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds. And of the animals according to their kinds. Of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. 
He did all that God commanded him. So as we're introduced to the story of the flood and this account in history, we have three different people or groups that are introduced. Of course, we have Noah and Noah here is referred in verse number nine as a man who is righteous, as a man who is blameless in his generation, as a man who walked with God. This is high praise given to a man. And we noticed last week from verse eight that Noah was found this way because he he found favor with God. God was gracious to Noah. And so Noah here is a recipient of grace and he's living righteously. So we have Noah here in this account, of course. And then we also have the people of Noah's generation. They weren't righteous. They weren't blameless. And they definitely didn't walk with God. Look what it says in verse number 11. The earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. Verse 12, God saw the earth. It was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And verse 13, and God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Okay, and so we have this idea of God seeing the earth and the people in the earth and they were corrupt. They were rotten. They were depraved. They were sinful. And when he repeats this idea that the earth is corrupt and the people are corrupt and they're filled with violence, we get an idea of what is going on here. So they were murdering one another. And why would I say that the earth is full of murderous hearts? Is because in Genesis 9, when the flood is over, when God gives the covenant to Noah, he articulates one law, that you are not to murder, that you are not to murder. And why would God give a law about not murdering in Genesis 9, right after the account of the flood? It would seem that the earth was filled of corruption and violence and murder was running rampant. It was commonplace. And so God gives the law of murder and even capital punishment, uh, the death penalty in Genesis 9. Because remember in Genesis 4, whenever we have uh, Cain murdering his brother Abel and then a descendant of Cain, Lamech, boasting about his murderous actions against a young man who struck him, we have God protecting them and saying, no, 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 no repercussions are going to happen to you in this life. No one's going to come and, and kill you because of that. And we see in Cain's descendant Lamech now boasting that nothing is going to happen to him because he is uh, a murderer par excellence compared to his descendant of Cain. And so we see murder run rampant on the earth and God sees that and is determined to destroy the earth. And so we have Noah, we have the wickedness of the people as two of the people, the characters you could say, and then we have God himself. Noah, or sorry, God here speaks to Noah in verse 13 all the way through to verse 21. Here we have the creator of the earth, the just one who has determined in verse 13, he says, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Okay, and we have his God speaking again in verse number six. Look up at verse number six in chapter six. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds to heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So we have a God here who is determined now to destroy the earth and all life in it because of the wickedness in it. So God gives here instructions to Noah. He tells him what he's determined to do. And then he tells him to make an ark. 
Uh, an arc larger here, if you do the math, larger than 500 feet long, uh, wider than it is tall, so it's stable and seaworthy, and sufficient uh, or are the animals, so the animals can further reproduce, male and female, two of every kind, and also uh, provision to feed them. So these are all detailed instructions that God gives to Noah. Now, one objection that some people offer is that there's there's no way that all the animals of the world can fit into a boat, uh, especially one of this size. It's just, it's an impossibility. But it specifically says in verse 20, if you look at verse 20, he says, the birds according to their kinds and the animals according to their kinds and every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. The same language used in Genesis 1 about God first making kinds and now preserving kinds. Okay, so it's not as if they needed a room for a German shepherd, a black lab, a great Dane, a wolf, a poodle, and all the rest of the dog varieties. Okay, there's one dog kind, a male and female. And from that genetic information, we have the, the plethora of different kinds of species and varieties that we see today. Now, many people have done the math and there is sufficient room on the ark for all the animals according to their kinds. Okay? But after God speaks here to Noah, he speaks from verse 13 all the way to verse 20 and then how does Noah respond? Look at verse 22. It says, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. He said, yes, Lord. I mean, of course, Noah was a righteous and blameless man. He walked, he walked with God. If God told him to do something, then yes, Lord, I'll do it. Now, just try to put yourself in Noah's shoes, though. God here is speaking to you that he's going to destroy the earth and blot everything on the earth. Now, if that doesn't scare you out of your pants, first off, then he tells you that, you're going to, that you want, he wants you to build this big boat and that you're going to bring all these creatures on to keep them alive. And... Noah has likely never even been inside a boat, let alone build one, and of this size and dimension, and then carry all these animals in. And so just the faith that Noah had to obey God is amazing. Hebrews 11.7 says this, it says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, he didn't see these things, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And so the first thing as we look for an application for this particular text and what we can learn from it is to have a faith that's similar to Noah's faith here. That when God tells us to do something, let's do it. Let's do all of it. Okay, and what has God told us to do? He hasn't told us to build an ark. He's told us to come to Christ in repentance and faith. He's told us to pursue holiness. He's told us to to flee sexual immorality. Uh, he's given us many commands in Scripture of what it looks like to be a Christian. He's told us to love God. He's told us to love each other. He's told us to proclaim the gospel. He's told us to, to go forth and to share the gospel. And so let's respond like Noah, who is here, said to be a recipient of grace and a righteous and blameless man. And he did it. He did all that God commanded him. Now, from the chronological markers in this text, we're going to see here that the instructions given to Noah in Genesis chapter 6 come about 100 years before the events of the floods. That gives him plenty of time for him and his sons and for others that he might have contracted to build this boat to build the ark exactly as God had commanded. Now, as we continue reading in chapter number 7, 
we're now then move forward in time to the very week before the flood. And so look with me in Genesis chapter seven, the first five verses. It says, then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days, one week, I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And look again at verse five. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Okay, so here we have again, seven days before this great catastrophe is about to come on the earth. Noah again obeys. And what does God tell him? Two of every kind. And actually have more detail here. Seven of every kind of the clean animals. Okay? And seven of every kind of the birds of the heaven. Why is that? Because when Noah's about to get off the, off the ark, he's going to have a sacrifice. He's going to give animals his offering up to God. And so there needs to be more than two if these animals are going to continue to propagate and not be extinct. And so God here gives further instructions a week before the flood and Noah does what is commanded of him. Now look with me as we continue the description of the flood in chapter 7, verse 6. Read from verse 6 all the way to the end of the chapter. It says, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. Verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventh day of the month, On that day, all the fountains of the great deep were burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark. It rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. 
they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. As we read this account of the flood, we can see it's written in such a way that we would not think this is just an allegory, a myth, a legend. It was given with details. In a certain month, a certain day of the month, in Noah's certain year, this is when the waters of the earth began to rise and began to flood the earth. The timing is so very particular, as you see here in verse number 11. Also, there's no way this flood is a local flood. If you saw verse 19 and notice verse 19, the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. I'm not sure how, any other way they could explicitly say it was a global flood than what he says there in verse number 19. And so we see the timing. We see the, the global extent of this flood is meant to, to tell, uh, tell us that this is not mere fiction. Now, all these details were given about the timing and about its extent, but also the cause. Look at verse number 11. In the middle of verse number 11, it says, On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. Now, now most conclude today is looking at this as a scientist who are Bible believers would, would conclude that there was a catastrophic movement of the tectonic plates of this earth. That we have this mid-oceanic ridge, we can actually see this ridge where, where scientists today say a new ocean crust is, is forming and developing as the current sea, ocean floor is moving away from that center point and going underneath the continents. They say it's happening so slow today that if you extrapolate that back eons and eons and millions and billions of years, that you get the shaping of the continents and the seafloor. But what, what scientists who are Bible believers would conclude is, is that movement of the seafloor actually happened in this flood in a very rapid fashion. In fact, the, the very tips of the, of the seafloor that go down into the middle of the earth is still hot, something that shouldn't, or it's still cold, something that should, shouldn't take place. It should have warmed up at this point in time. And so they have these models for these catastrophic moving of these tectonic plates, which then would have created things like our Rocky Mountains and other features that we see all over the earth. Um, and so we see a, a rapid movement of these tectonic plates, likely a breaking up of this one landmass that was the face of the earth as it used to be, leaving the earth scarred and um, much evidence of a global flood. And so as these plates move, we would have seen the immediate effect of the rising sea level as the seas would have come onto the land immediately. That's why the lower fossil records also have all these sea creatures because they were buried first. And then we have rain coming on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. So as the, the great deep, these fountains of the great deep burst forth up into the sky, sufficient water to rain down for 40 days and for 40 nights and to bury the earth with water. And the waters here prevailed or reached their crest in 150 days. Okay? Now, while the, the science and the geology and the evidence for a flood is fascinating, to many of us. Let's not miss the, the point of this particular text. Look with me in verse 21 and 20 to 23 in chapter 7. Verse 21 in chapter 7, And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. 
everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Some estimate that there were millions of people on the earth at this time, giving the lifespans of people, giving the amount of children they could have, and the time between creation, the time of the flood, millions, some even speculate, even a billion or more people, all destroyed, consumed by this violent, catastrophic flood. Now, what, what do we think of when we read these verses? In chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, what comes to your mind when you think about God, the creator of heaven and earth, completely blotting out mankind from the face of the earth with a global flood? What, what would come to our minds when we think about such judgment? When we see millions of lives just snuffed out by the command of God, likely we think, that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem like a very kind and compassionate God to just wipe out the whole earth. And what about the animals? What do they do? They got wiped out along with man too? Like millions of people get wiped out by God in a global flood that doesn't seem right. God seems ruthless. He seems vindictive. He seems like he just got angry and just did something that he wasn't really thinking of doing. So often we come to a text, especially in the Old Testament, of God's swift and severe judgment. We begin thinking poor thoughts about God. Very rarely does it ever cause us to think poorly of our sin. Very rarely do we think about just how ghastly and how disgusting and how revolting sin is to the, that, that aroma of disgusting sin up to the righteous nostrils of God. And how he's a just God. And he can't bear to look at the sin and the depravity of mankind. Rarely do we think of that. But so often we think poor thoughts about God. Now why is that? Why would we kind of default to wonder about God? And perhaps we even want to alleviate God of this judgment upon the earth and, and try to make an apology for God and, and try to put God in another light so he's more palatable to people who might also feel that this is not right of God to do this. Why is that our instinct? Rather than seeing sin for the wickedness that it is. It's, I think it's because we're too close to our own sin that we don't see it for what it is. Think about ourselves as individuals. Think about ourselves as a church. Are we known for holiness? Are we known for purity? Are we known for a disdain for sin in our lives? Would someone look at our lives and say, there's a person who hates sin. There's a person who is holy, who loves righteousness. Listen to what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians 5.3, he says this, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetous, covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Could that be said of the church today? Church today is plagued with rampant sexual immorality. This world is plagued with rampant, rampant sexual immorality. And it's brought its way into the church. 
And it's not a light issue. And not only that, but impurity, covetousness. The scripture says it must not even be named among you. That's how the scriptures talk about sin. And so instead, we think poorly about God because we love our sin more than we love him and his righteousness. But we have a choice as we're reminded of a text like this. We can continue to think poorly of God, continue to try to think excuses to alleviate him and his justice and his judgment against sin. Or we can change our hearts and our minds about what sin really is. And we would grow in our, and look at our own lives and have a hatred for our own sin. And have a hatred for sin that we see in the church and hatred for sin that we see around us. And we would praise God for his righteous judgment and at the same time thank him for his gracious and tender mercy that he's offered to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this account of the flood should first and foremost cause us to see sin for what it is, disgusting in the eyes of God, such that he would completely destroy it. So we see God's judgment, we see his justice, and then chapter number eight begins with a but. And we see God's mercy And we see God's grace. Look with me in chapter 8. I'm going to read the first 19 verses of chapter 8. It says, In the midst of this judgment, when when the waters were at their highest, as all things were being blotted out and destroyed, it says in chapter 8, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens were restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days... Forty more days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. Verse 13. In the six hundredth and first year, in the first month and the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. So here we have the conclusion of the flood. So at the height of its magnitude, 
God remembers Noah, blows with a wind, and the waters subside, and the ark eventually comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Notice it's not Mount Ararat, but the mountains of Ararat, that whole mountain range, somewhere there, the ark came to rest. And then Noah begins to send birds out. The first bird he sent out was a raven. And they even went to and fro and never came back. And that makes sense because ravens are carrion feeders, which means they eat rotting flesh. And there would have been a lot of food for them. So no need for them coming back as they gorge themselves on flesh. Then next, Noah sent out the dove. And it came back empty-handed. So a week later, he sent out the dove again. This time the dove came back with an olive leaf, knowing that the ground was beginning to produce life again. So seven days later, he sent out the dove again, and it did not return. So Noah then obviously didn't have a vantage point to see for himself, sending out these birds, then breaks open the ark so he could see that the dry land had indeed appeared and it was safe for him to come out and God called him out. And then God makes a covenant with Noah. He tells the animals here to be fruitful and multiply. But starting in verse 20, I want to read as God speaks with Noah at the end of the flood. So look with me in Roman, oh, sorry, Genesis chapter 8, verse number 20. I'm going to read all the way to chapter 9, verse 17. Noah built, sorry, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done, while the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Verse 8 in chapter 9. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my my bow, my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. 
When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So after the flood, God makes a covenant with Noah, with his family, and with every living creature, and even to future generations. This covenant still stands. Now there's a number of things of significance in this portion that we just read that I want to draw your attention to. The first is this, the end of, uh, end of chapter 8, is the realization that God is successful in accomplishing his purposes to judge the world in this flood. But God's judgment alone is not sufficient to fix the heart of man. Verse 21 seems so strange at first. Look at verse 21. Noah offers offerings in verse 20. And then verse 21, it says, When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. This begs the question in my mind, didn't God already know this? Didn't he know that this judgment upon the earth wasn't going to remedy man's heart? Surely God would have known that. So why does God, after the flood, say, well, I know that man is sinful from his heart, from his youth. Man is, man is born in sin. And so judgment is not sufficient to deal with the problem of sin. And so why would God say this after the fact? How do we make sense of this verse? Some point to this verse and say, well, God here, doesn't he know what he's doing? Because he sent a flood and he realizes after it didn't really work. Well, the flood did work. It accomplished God's purpose. God's purpose in the flood was not redemption of man's sinful heart. God's purpose in the flood was judgment. And I've seen all the way back in chapter six, I will blot out mankind from the face of the earth. I am going to bring justice. I am going to bring judgment. I am going to destroy man. That was God's purpose and it was accomplished. And so God's purpose in the flood was accomplished. Yet we see here at the end of the flood that there's more to it than God's judgment against sin. Man's heart is still sinful even after the flood. And we see this exemplified in Noah's life and the life of his sons. The flood didn't fix the problem of sin, but it does teach us about the necessity of redemption. And what does it teach us? These verses here in the end of chapter 8 teach us that while man is still fallen, while man is still sinful in his heart from his youth, man can still find peace and favor with God through faith and through sacrifice. Because Noah here, how, how did he even get on that boat to be saved in the first place? By faith, it says in Hebrews 11. He believed God. He heard all that God said and he did it. He obeyed God because he believed the word of God. And so because Noah had faith, he was saved. And then here he offers a sacrifice, an offering that was a sweet 
aroma, an pleasing aroma up to the Lord. And so man here, sinful man, can be in right relationship to God through faith and through sacrifice. And we see this exemplified also in the New Testament, that it's through faith in the promises of God through the Lord Jesus Christ and through his sacrifice that sinful man can find favor with God and we can experience redemption. And so we do learn here, even though this account is about judgment, we do learn about redemption and how one is to approach God. The second thing that we notice in this text is the covenant given to Noah and to the world. A number of different things. It reiterates the covenant given to Adam about how a call here in the very first verse of chapter 9 to be fruitful and multiply and how dominion over the animals is given to mankind. The fear of man is given to the animals because into the hand of man they are delivered. We see here the diet of man has changed, no longer just the plants of the ground, but also the animals as well. Although he says, don't eat the blood. Okay. Uh, But you may eat the flesh of these animals. God promises never again to curse the ground through a global flood to destroy the earth and all creatures through a flood. God gives them a law in Genesis 9-6 about murder and that murder is condemned with the death penalty. And so we see that here in Genesis 9-6. And then finally, we see God giving a covenant sign in the rainbow. And it's interesting how often God repeats the sign of the rainbow and that when he looks at it, he'll be reminded of the covenant he made with mankind. He'll be reminded that his judgment is going to be stayed and that he will not judge this earth with a global flood again. So we learn here through this covenant that God is not going to judge the earth with a flood, but rather through faith, through sacrifice, through grace, man will be made acceptable in God's sight. Now, as we reach here, this is as far as I'm going to read through this morning. Now, how does this account come to bear in our lives today? This is what I want to end on. How, how does this, the account of Noah's Ark, besides talking about the science and the things that go on with that, how does this account come to bear in our lives today? What I, what I want to do is, as we consider its ap- applicability to us, is start with the words of Jesus. We're going to read from Matthew 24, verses 37 to 39. Okay? And I want you to listen to Jesus' words as he applies this account of Noah to his hearers in his day. Matthew 24, 37 to 39 says this, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. And then he says, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. People in Noah's day were not expecting God's judgment. Certainly not expecting a global flood to come and wipe them all out. They were unaware. They were carrying upon their lives, carrying upon their sin, their corruption, their depravity. No clue about this God who is about to bring swift judgment upon them. Certainly they knew God. Everyone knows God. And they know God is a God who of justice and is righteous and who will judge. But in their mind, that was far from their mind. 
And so they continued about their lives. And what Jesus is saying here, people at the time of Noah weren't expecting God's judgment and neither will people at his return be expecting God's judgment. The world is just going to carry on as normal. So the first thing that we should take from this text this morning is for us not to live in ignorance of the coming judgment of God. Okay? There's one thing we should learn from this text is don't live in ignorance of this God who will judge, who has judged, who is judging and who will judge completely and finally and will eradicate sin and death at the return of Jesus Christ. Don't live in ignorance of that fact. We're called in the scripture to live as if Christ is going to return at any moment. We're to live as if there is going to be a reckoning, a recompense for sins committed. Do you recognize that as you live this week? Think about it as, you're, as you succumb to the temptation to sin. That you are going to stand before God in judgment. And this is the God who you're standing before. The God who has destroyed this earth in the past because of sin and corruption. Don't think lightly of sin. Don't think lightly of God. Don't think lightly of his judgment. We are to live in light of God and his judgment. You should ask yourself, is that how I live? Do I even live that way even for a moment of my life? Have I ever thought about being before God in judgment? Have I ever thought what it's going to be like when everything, all my actions, everything in my mind, everything I ever thought, everything I did, ever did in private that I would be embarrassed if anybody knew about that God knows perfectly and he's going to reveal that and judge me according to that. This is a God who deals with sin in such serious manner. So Jesus warns us here to be prepared. And how does he warn us? To look expectantly to faith, to repent and believe in the gospel, to persevere in faith, to persevere in love, to persevere in good works, to flee immorality. And when Jesus tells us to flee sin and immorality, he knows how serious it is. Remember what he said in the gospel, that if your hand causes you to sin, what should you do? Cut it off. If your eyes cause you to sin, what should you do? Pluck them out. Imagine that. Feet cause you to sin, cut them off. For it is better for you to go maimed into heaven than for you to go with all of your limbs and be cast into hell. Now, Jesus is not teaching us bodily mutilation. But what he's teaching us is the serious nature of sin and that we will stand before God in judgment. So flee from sin. Get rid of it. And in our day and age, sometimes whenever we talk about dealing with matters of sin, and if the counsel is given, look, maybe you need to get rid of your internet if your internet's such a problem for you. What I hear is, oh, I could never do that. The internet's so necessary for us. And necessary is your hand probably and your eye and your feet. And Jesus says, cut it off. Deal with sin because you're going to stand before a God who judges and look at his just judgment that he did to the earth. And he's going to do it again when Jesus Christ comes back, not with water, but with fire. Listen to the command in 1 John 3, 2. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when, we, when he appears, we will be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in the coming of Christ purifies himself as he is pure. 
And listen also to the same lesson in 2 Peter 3. It says in 2 Peter 3, Scoffers will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But Peter says this, They deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. What is Peter saying? When these scoffers say, where's the coming judgment of God? Where's the return of Christ? It's not here. It looks the same to me. Peter says they're forgetting the flood. They're forgetting the judgment of God in the flood of what happened there. So let's not forget it. He says, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, not for water, for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Later in verse 10 in 2 Peter 3, he says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? He says, in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. You see the commands of Peter here? What do we learn from the flood account? That God has judged and he will judge again. And so our response is to be holy, be blameless, flee from unrighteousness, pursue peace with God. And that's achieved, of course, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when the New Testament writers apply the truth of the global flood, they call us to live for holiness, to live expecting God's judgment, to live in light of God's judgment when everyone and every work will be called to account. And he's going to come, it says here, like a thief, when you don't expect. So be sure that you have made peace with God and this conquering king. When Jesus comes, it's no more time to make peace. He's coming to conquer. He's coming to, sl- coming to slay the ungodly and the wicked. The blood will be up to the bridle of his horse. The coming judgment is going to be just as catastrophic as the global flood was. And so as we think of the flood, think of God's judgment. Do you have peace with God? Do you know that if you were to stand before God right now, if he was to take your life, if you were to, you were just to fall over in your chair and you're suddenly in the presence of God and he opens the books, is your name in the Lamb's book of life? Are you a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? And is that exemplified? By a heart that loves holiness, the heart that is filled with the spirit, who loves righteousness, who is, by God's grace, fleeing from immorality and impurity and covetousness. These are serious questions to be asked as we consider the flood. Perhaps you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm, I'm not that scared. I'm not that scared of God. To which I should say you should be. You should be. It's a different kind of fear. 
you know, I, I love my I love my father very much. But when he went to work, and if we were foolish at home, my mom wasn't a disciplinarian; she never spanked us. Um, but her, but her discipline was: I'm going to tell dad. And when dad comes home, I'm going to tell him what you did. Suddenly, all of us were on best behavior because we didn't know when dad was coming home, but we know if dad came home and if mom told dad what we did, it wouldn't be good, you know? We'd, we'd be brought out behind the barn, my dad would say, okay? It wouldn't be good. And so we had a fear for our father and for his judgment. But yeah, I love my father. And so we can have a fear of God and his judgment and have a love for him. A fear because he is a God who, who judges righteously and we're wicked sinners. And yet we can love him because he has provided a way to escape that judgment in the Lord Jesus Christ. That he has provided a way for Christ to take that punishment, that penalty of death in our place so that we could be forgiven. So that's the first thing I want us to remember, see in this text. The second thing I want us to see is how this text points forward to Christ. Going back to Hebrews eleven seven, it says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. There we have, reverent fear of God. Built an ark for the saving of his household. It says, By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Interesting here is that Noah's faith and Noah's obedience led to the salvation of his household. And so Noah here prefigures the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ and how through Jesus Christ's obedience, he saves his household, the church. In fact, Romans 5.19 says this, by one man's obedience, speaking of Christ, the many will be made righteous. And so as we see Noah and his blameless attitude, see in him a prefiguring of the Lord Jesus Christ. And through his own obedience, he saves his family. And through Christ's obedience, he saves all those who are his family, his church, his bride, his flock. And so be sure you're one of his. We also see in Noah the example of how we are at peace with God through faith. Noah, it says in Hebrews eleven seven, is an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So how was Noah righteous? It came through faith. How are we to stand righteous before God so we would not be consumed by his judgment and his fury? Through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, faith not to build an ark, but the word that God has spoken to us is come to Christ. Come to Christ for safety. Come to Christ for your life. Come to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And so... Instead of Noah proclaiming to the people to come aboard the ark, God is proclaiming to you to come to Christ, to come to this ark of safety, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. To which we would ask, what does it mean to come to Christ? I hear preachers say that a lot. Come to Christ. Come come to Him. What does that mean? How do I come to Christ? I like how Pilgrim's Progress puts it. Coming is the same as believing. Coming is the same as trusting. Trust that in Christ you have salvation. Trust that when you... When you, when you believe upon him and the words that he says, that you have life in him, that he has died for you and has risen again for your justification, that you believe that is true and you're going to cling to that with all of your life. You're not trusting anything else. You're trusting in Christ and so you believe him and follow him. That's what it means to come to Christ. Now, the people in Noah's day didn't listen to Noah. But are we going to listen? Are we going to listen to Christ? Are we going to learn from this example? 
Or are we going to be like the mockers and scoffers and not see God in this judgment? Are we going to live in light of Christ's return? Are we going to take hold of his promised salvation? It's interesting. There was only one ark, only one family saved. Same thing in Christ. Only one savior. That's Lord Jesus Christ. Only one way to be saved through faith in him. Let's pray. God, we've covered a lot of scripture here this morning. I pray that the central idea of this passage would resonate within us. That when we're reminded of this text, when we see a rainbow in the sky, we'll be reminded of your mercy and grace. We'll be reminded that you will not judge this world again by water. But I pray that we'll also be reminded of your judgment and of the coming return of Christ. And I pray that that would cause us to again seek peace with Christ, to pursue holiness, to flee wickedness, knowing that you are a God who hates sin. So help us to be pure and holy people. Help us to be be renewed and transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his spirit. Give us grace, we pray. May we find favor as Noah did. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.